standing on a mountain looking down on a city the way i feel is a dog on pity teardrops falling down a mountainside many times i've been here many times i cried we used to be so happy when we were in love high on a mountain of love night after night i've been standing here alone weeping my heart out to cold red dawn you're lonely and you come here too hoping just by chance that i get a glimpse of you trying hard to find you somewhere i love high on a mountain of love a mountain of love a mountain of love you should be ashamed we used to be a mountain of love but you just changed your name way down below half a million people somewhere there's a church with a big cross steeple inside a church there's an altar filled with flowers wedding bells are ringing and they should have been ours that's why i'm so lonely our dreams gone above high on a mountain above This is episode 261, and it is entitled Mountain of Love, the uh, pretext for which is the song we've just heard by Johnny Rivers from 1964, which is a massive and lovely and, uh, in my view, uh, pro-Christian because of the wonderful reference to the church um, single. And I want to talk about love as a mountain. Love is the Mount Everest of human experience, and I particularly mean romantic love, and I really am interested in a in a causal question. It has to do with the podcast itself, because I've been um, uh, peddling, uh, purveying, uh, offering, um, expressing this conviction that I have come to over the years, um, which I've always felt, you might say, sub-rationally or almost sub-theologically, but it's always informed my emotional life. And um, it's a theme that I personally believe is empirically self-evident or empirically uh, um, provable. And this is the uh, impression, or rather the um, statement that of all human drives, the drive between men and women and women and men for a romantic uh, connection. I mean, you can express it even further if you want to be um, 
even more panoramic about it, but let us simply say the drive for a romantic connection of oneness between two individuals is the most powerful um, aspiration of human beings individually and then as couples. This is the bottom line. This is the root of faith in God. It is the root of belief in God and confidence in God and trust in God and, and uh, seeking after God and pilgrimage at the deepest level, psychodynamically and spiritually, to find a, uh, a oneness where there was an otherwise alienated uh, attunus or otherness. And this drive is expressed uh, overwhelmingly throughout the history of human art and human uh, personal feeling in the desire for men and women to be together as one in a couple. Don't please leave out all the contemporary problems relevant to who's who. Let's simply say the romantic urge for connection is primary and not secondary. Now, the question I'm asking about this, and I'm going to give a few examples of it, but is why isn't everyone just rushing to concur? Now, as I've given out this theme probably through close to 50 podcasts, I've never had a single person um, push back. I've never had one. I've gotten a lot of comments about a lot of things over the years and a lot of pushback and a lot of <clears throat> all sorts of uh, people come at me for all sorts of reasons. Uh, and more uh, typically, they come at me because they feel my theology from the ground up is somehow a derogation from the sovereignty of God. You might call call that sort of Karl Bar Barth's 20th century contribution with others. And um, so I get a lot of, 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 I've had pushback on many, many fronts throughout the years. I've had no pushback on this fundamental core assertion that the primary religious slash personal slash emotional slash philosophical slash metanoetic slash ontological core emotional urge that is underlying all others is the urge for connection with another human being that we and I call romantic love because it is most quintessentially expressed in my own experience and that of songs and that of music and that of all that surrounds us in terms of insight that tries to abreact and catheterize human experience, um, it, it seems to me overwhelmingly evident. You know, they, as you know, they've studied uh, pop songs of the last 40 years since people began to really think of pop 100s and top 10s, sort of in the 50s and actually the 40s it began, maybe earlier. And um, of all the songs that have ever reached the top 20, in America at least, of all of them, something like 96% have to do with romantic love. It, not 30, not, not 60%, but something like 96, maybe 97 have to do, and the others have to do maybe with a common shared experience or a fun thing or patriotism, and occasionally uh, a, um, a, a social uh, matter of social concern, justice, but that's like 1.5%. So the evidence is in, but my question is, why do people not just, just, just line up to concur and say, you know, Paul, this is so important that we, that we understand this, because if we understood this, we, we wouldn't waste so much time uh, in putting our hopes in so many secondary kind uh, to connect with ideas or with a pop artist or with Andy Warhol or with, you know, Journey or whatever it is, all of whom I love, all of whom I love, 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 but that, um, that the, the urge for connection is most generally expressed and perceived and plaintively 
uh, diagnosed both for loss and for satisfaction in the romantic uh, sweep of human uh, desire. That includes sex, obviously, and libido, but it is uh, sex and libido are a part of it, but they are the, a certain expression, a most vital and absolutely decisive expression, but they are not the bottom line of it. The bottom line is the old, uh, what is it, the... To the two-backed giant. What is the word? It you know that you in Shakespeare, but but two backs, uh, the four-footed two-back thing. Whatever it is, um, the uh, the the thing that I'm uh, eager to understand is why do I not get more you know uh, people coming to the door and saying thank you for uh, understanding this. It 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 is uh, it's almost because uh, while nobody has ever pushed back on it, not one single person, and these are people who might. Well, because they push back on other things, um, it uh, it leads me to believe that there must be some kind of bashfulness about it, and people must think that if they if they accept this, they must be reducing larger things to sort of the mundane or the everyday. It's really quite the opposite. The larger things that you think are important are not important. The really the mundane is important. Now, I don't mean taking out the garbage or uh, you know take out the paper and the trash. You know, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about romantic love between a man and a woman in marriage and uh, uh, what leads to marriage, and uh, bearing children, and conceiving children. That's what I'm talking about. But why does uh, why do people not sort of just, I mean, it's, it's the New York Times all the time, Jonathan Haidt, and so forth. David Zoll quotes people. By the way, David Zoll talks about this very brilliantly and very perceptively in his book that is soon to come out called Seculosity with Fortress Press. But I want to um, uh, really say, why is it that people are a little uh, abashed by this theme? Let me give you one other clear example of it. I think it could be said that the most elucidatory novel about uh, politics and about all that's happening today and about basically all political life as a historical progression or historical cycle that repeats itself and repeats itself, and especially in light of what we see today, uh, I think it continues to be 1984. I don't think George Orwell's novel should have a word changed. It is as, um, it is as uh, terminally penetrating today as it was when it first came out, and it's never changed in its uh, ability to understand what is going on. But you'll notice in that great novel, if it were just about the ministry of truth, which is really the ministry of falsehood, or just about the ministry of love, which is really the minister of torture, uh, if he were just talking about newspeak and um, all the different uh, ways that uh, information is uh, is falsified um, and people are turned into automatons uh, who all think the same under penalty of death or sedation in the case of Winston Smith. What is it really about? It's really about how there is one drive in human nature that is so strong that it actually counters and ultimately is willing to martyr itself against this all-encompassing political and informational um, system. And that is the love between Winston Smith and Julia. Now, the love is conquered and destroyed and horribly um, tortured at the end. But it is only that the sort of um, he catches her eye and she catches his eye in, in a, a, a love, what a love in, which is really a hate in. And um, isn't that, doesn't that say everything about now? Um, but um, the uh, uh, Winston Smith and Julia, the only thing that they consider important enough to ultimately um, uh, uh, 
use against and triumph over the forces that are terminal otherwise that they are under is their romantic slash psychosexual connection and love, which is consummated on a couple of occasions at that, what is it, end of the sixth happy, I mean, that, that's where in they go to, uh, whatever it's called, Green Tree Inn, but that's not it, it's something else, but you know, it's that upper room where they have their times together, and that is what Orwell is saying, that underneath all the rest of the political um, idolatry that is so massive and that is constantly changing, is changing in innumerable metastasizing and transmogrifying forms, that the only thing that really counts, that is, is sufficient to overcome that, is the, uh, the love uh, between uh, Julia and Winston Smith. So my question to you is, what, what gives here? I mean, what is, what is, uh, what, what's wrong? Um, you know, uh, you look at the person you've been with for years and years and years, and the person you love more than anything else in the world, and um, and and you don't see uh, you, you don't see what that man looks like now. I mean, I'm I've got white hair. I mean, I, I have my cheeks are sunken in. I, I can sort of th- anticipate how I'm going to look if I don't gain weight. I can sort of anticipate how I'm going to look in the hospital or at home when I'm dead. The day, the moment after I die, or three hours after I die, I can sort of see what my face is going to look like. My I have one terribly horribly snaggly tooth. Um, I can see the gums. I can see these cheeks that are going to fall in in some premature burial scenario. I can see uh, this hair that I, I look at myself. I said, is that the same person? I can't believe it. We were looking at an actress's uh, documentary the other day of an actress I happened to adore from the early 60s. She was in uh, The Small World of Sammy Lee, and she was in The Loneliness and the Long Distance Runner. I just thought she was the most attractive, beautiful thing in the history of the world when I was 11. Um, but um, she has an interview with herself now in connection with Sammy Lee's reissue by the British Film Institute. And, oh, I mean, it, it, you just can't, you're looking at it, you say you just can't believe it because that's what mortality does. That's what your body does. And Mary did a wonderful retreat recently on, on what the body tells us as we're aging. But what I'm trying to say is um, that, 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 that when I look at someone or hope they look at me, I hope they see me as I was when I was young. I know that when I see Mary, who still looks great, by the way, unbelievable how good she looks. But when I look at Mary, what I, the person that I often see is the person I knew when I was uh, 20. Uh, the person I knew when I was 20 and she was just a couple years older, the person I knew when she was a senior at Chapel Hill, I see her smile, I see her. I'm reminded of that very upsetting and very uh, brilliant Jimmy Webb song called um, you, 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 No Signs of Age. It's called No Signs of Age. And he's seeing somebody he hasn't seen for 40 years. And to his astonishment, as she walks into the, the room, he sees no signs of age because to him, she is the person that she was 40 years ago. So I look at Mary and then I, I looked at a picture the other night of her when she was on some kind of a weekend away with colleagues or co-workers uh, uh, in 1971 or something like that on Cape Cod and this picture and that's the person I see now. Now what that means is that the core connection that we experienced at a certain time and look you can identify with this. Don't just write this off oh, this is Paul being romantic. What about you? I mean you look at your wife or your husband. I hope I know that if you're a man you do and I sometimes think that the reason people don't run to me and say you've elucidated or you've you've put out a light. You've put a light on things that I've been wondering about all my life because of my own inner life. I've been trying, you shed light on my inner life that I have no one, you know, that I don't hear from other sources. The reason now, I think sometimes women don't see it quite the same way as men. They're not as likely to live in memory in the past in this way. They, they're more, for whatever reasons, it's a good thing, <laughs> I wish I had it, of evolution. They're able to relive more in the relationships present 
And I tend to uh, uh, see the present relationship through the, in my case with Mary, the very beautiful rosy spectacles, but that's not the right word. I see her through the lens of the person that she always will be to me, and she still is. And hopefully I evoke in her a little bit of that who's still there, and hopefully she would do the same to me. But I sometimes think maybe women are so in, 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 uh, anchored in the present that they don't quite see it the way men do. But forever, but men aren't telling me that either. You know, they're, they're ah, uh, this is for you, Ellis. Ellis, you, Ellis tells me, Ellis and Debbie tell me that I speak for them, and I'm so grateful. Ellis Brazil in Birmingham and Debbie Brazil, who they are one of the most remarkable people you've ever met in your life. Um, but what I am just struck by is that why is people are people not concurring? George Orwell said it. Um, Shakespeare said it. Milton, for heaven's sake, said it in Paradise Lost. These movies say it. Even Mandy says it. The movie I was talking about yesterday from 1951, her, her parents said they've got to come to something that is core. And uh, in fact, it's the father of the groom, the father of the husband, who the father of the father, who really sees it. And he's able to finally basically shut up and the, the, his wife, who he loves, but who's horrible in the way she's uh, impinging and intruding on her son's life. And he is able, the father, the grandfather is able to stand up to the grandmother in a most remarkable manner. This is where the rubber hits the road. That's why we had Mountain of Love. It's a mountain. Mountain of love, a mountain of love. We should be together. That's just absolutely the truth of life. Well, I'm going to end a little short today because I just might. Would you have any thoughts? I mean, seriously, write me. Do you have any thoughts? Ellis, you write me. But Ellis will be the only one because people don't seem to be willing to say that, you know, uh, gosh, th th this is what I'm really thinking about late at night. I'm thinking about her. Or I'm thinking about him. and I, Now, again, I, there may be a difference between men and women, and I'm perfectly open to that, and it doesn't bother me at all. People have told me that, but I know that most men that I know really well, and I know this from literature and from art and from, uh, from rock and roll, that that's where we are. So I thought I'd conclude today with a song from my earliest uh, married life, one year into my marriage. A wonderful Charlie Rich uh, sang a song about the woman he loved, and I just think it's the most beautiful thing in the world, and I commend it to you. That's my last word today. If you happen to see the most beautiful girl in the world, love you! Did you happen to see the most beautiful girl in the world? And if you did, was she crying, crying? Hey, if you happen to see the most beautiful girl that walked out on me, tell her I'm sorry. What I had done I stood alone In the cold gray dawn And knew I'd lost My morning sun I lost my head And I said some things Now comes the heartaches That the morning brings I know I'm wrong 
Tell her. 